Welcome back to the Educator's Room podcast, a place for educators everywhere, regardless of grade level or content area. Put down your grade books and grab a glass of wine and learn with our host, Francesca. Welcome, everybody, to episode 57 of the Educator's Room Podcast. I'm your host, Francesca Warren, and today we have the lovely Linda Darcy with us. We're going to talk about affluent districts and some of the differences that we see as teachers um, from going from one district to another. So, Linda, can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I have been an educator for 20 years. Um, Mostly, I've been in underserved populations. My first job was in a uh, very depressed but very white district. I then moved to a closer to Hartford, um, where I worked in a very diverse but very middle-class district. And then I ended up teaching um, mostly kids of color in a magnet school in the in Hartford. So they were Har- mostly Hartford kids. Um, and but the, the big difference was we had some money, you know, so mm. we had the resources that we needed. And then I became an administrator and went to a, a, a smaller district. Um, unfortunately, due to budget, a horrible budget season, um, I got laid off. And so uh, back to the classroom I go. Uh, we've had really bad budget seasons uh, with the state government as well. So I, end, I am ending up teaching in a very affluent um, school district. And the particular middle school that I am in, is kind of the top of even this district. So mm. uh, it is a very, very different environment than I have ever had in the classroom. Mm. And so as you are teaching in this, like, so let's talk about just the the politics of teaching in an affluent district. And I think a lot of people don't realize that there are things because in, 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 educa- in the education world, everybody thinks like, oh, you teach in a, in a district that serves, you know, students who maybe don't have a lot of money. There's all these issues, but there are a lot of issues when you teach affluent kids. So, like, what are some of the things that you've noticed, like, just initially you teaching there and you working there? You know, it is interesting that, you know, as as educators, we know how to pull out all the language we want if we if we want to intimidate a parent, you know, not going to lie, you know, it, it, we know how to do it. Right. Uh, teaching in the affluent district is very different because the parents are even better educated than I am. Um, they are more, I find them more likely to push back on decisions. Um, I've always been pretty casual with, uh, with a lot of um, discipline stuff in my class. Like, let me just handle it on my own and I can handle it better that way anyway. There's a lot more of a push to make sure the parents know every single thing and they may end up pushing back much more than I would ever push back on in any of the other districts. Um, and, and not that that's a bad thing, it's just very different. You know, uh, some of the some of the parents are very, very, very involved, and that is something, something new for, for me to experience, you know. Yeah. Um, we did what we, we could by bringing conferences into the city, into the libraries and things, but, uh, oh, that's what it was. So we, we just had parent-teacher conferences. They were all scheduled during the day, and 90% of the parents came. Wow. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So you're one, one of the things that you're t- – like, as I hear you talk about parents being involved and all of the things that you see, I see that in my kids' school. So 
there are a group of parents and I'm in the group of parents who we want to know what's going on, how they're doing things. What is the budget going to look like? Why is there not a foreign language? We're asking these questions. And a lot of people yeah. are like, well, why? I mean, I don't know. They don't, they come to us like, well, why do we need to know this? Like, is that our place? And a lot of, for a lot of parents, whether they're middle class or they're working parents, some don't know the power that parents have. And if you go to an affluent district, you see it firsthand with parents who raise concerns and things are changed immediately or um, discipline or just, you know, just all of these things. Um, well, even getting getting your kids into an AP class, right? Oh, God, Almost yes. every district will, you know, it's a parent's choice. Right. You know, uh, but like you said, a lot of parents, they, they, they don't know that. And it's, and it's often because they had a lousy experience in their, in their public education. And so they are more hesitant to, to try and, and talk to people in the school just because they had a lousy experience. And, and, don't, and like you said, they don't realize the power that they do have. So let, let me, let's talk about this. Cause I think this is super interesting because there are parents in my school and you know, as of course at any school, there are other parents who are like, you know, I think that's too much. I think we should let, and I, and I certainly I'm, I'm a teacher's, you know, I'm their biggest cheerleader. Um, but I've noticed that issues like, for example, issues that I see with the district policies, it's much more effective for parents. And and parents do this in a lot of affluent communities where they go directly to the superintendent or to the associate and they voice their concerns. And because of their concerns, things are changed immediately. So let's talk about like the first five, the five big differences that you see in working in your current district compared to your last couple of districts. Sure. Well, some of them are just really kind of little things, but uh, it's more of a sign to me of, boy, I am, I am in a very different place. And one is, you know, the bane of any existence is uh, lunch duty, and and it's still a pain in the neck, and even with uh, in in an affluent district. Um, but they are <laughs> they're they're very well trained. They like raise their hand to go get a napkin. I'm like what? Um, but it's kind of nice from my end, you know. Like it's pretty calm. However, like they very few people get hot lunch. Most kids bag it, and it's. You know, I went and looked up the statistics, and it's like less than 12% of our kids are eligible for free or reduced lunch. Mm. So they, they brown bag it. Um, Let me ask you this. Is, is, there a difference in the, is there a difference in the lunch that's served? Uh, it, well, no. It's it's just as nasty as <laughs> place I've been. Uh, <laughs> they had, they had uh, let's see, when was it? It was Tuesday. They had this. I always, I always joke, but it's horrible that school lunches are basically khaki colored, right? Yes. You have tater tots or some kind of potato product, some kind of breaded meat, and then corn. Um, and so this, they had this horrible looking meatloaf concoction that looked like a McRib without the sauce. It was horrible. Mm, mm, but mm. they still get nasty lunches, but again, it's because nobody, you know, on the other hand, you've got the kids bringing in their lunch, and it's definitely better than what I'm eating for dinner, you know? Yeah. Uh, so the the hot lunches are just as bad, but the lunches the kids bring in are very nice, very well balanced. They've got the little containers with little separators to keep their, yeah. <laughs> mm, mm. Someone had more time than I do making lunch in the morning. <laughs> mm. So that's, okay, so talk about, I think you were about to go into the second thing that you noticed. Uh, yeah, well, I was going to talk about the hallways. You know, um, even when I went 
to the last district I was in as an administrator, when I went to their high school, I was amazed at how calm the the hallways were. And the same is, is true in the school I'm in now, just how quiet the hallway is. They're still kind of goofing around, but right. I, don't, I don't know what it is, but some somewhere, somehow, there's not as much horseplay in the hallways as other schools I've been in. Well, you know, and again, you know, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was no, gonna, go yeah, ahead. go ahead. Mm, go ahead. Well, I was going to talk about, you know, uh, we had offline, we were talking about expectations. And I think that a lot of that, you know, I think teachers in urban schools get so exhausted of constantly correcting a kid, the kids. And there is a, you know, at some point, you have to stop and let the kids be who they are because they are kids. Right. And teachers, teachers get tired, and certainly the kids get tired of all of the interactions being negative. You know, and and it, no wonder some kids can't stand coming to school because they're constantly getting yelled at. Yeah. So I don't I don't know what the answer is, other than just accepting a, a certain level a noise level as a, a cultural difference. And it may be that me growing up in the in a, well, actually, in a fairly affluent white school district, that, yeah, things were very quiet. And But that doesn't mean that wherever I go to teach, it's going to be the same way. Yeah, I wonder, you know, adding to the conversation that we had offline, I was just interviewing somebody else for the podcast last night, and we talked about the over-policing of our students at schools, specifically our brown and black students, especially our boys. And when I say over-policing, I'm not talking about, like, out in the world. I'm talking about in schools where we want to control when the kids talk, when they go to the bathroom, we want to control what they say, we want to control where they, what they wear, we want to control every aspect of them being in the building. And we talked about how a lot of their counterparts in maybe affluent schools or affluent districts, they're not policed like that. They're allowed to talk. They're allowed to learn. They're allowed to. They're allowed to be themselves. And so I wonder if be some of these schools kids are acting up in the hallways because I never get a chance to just breathe and just be silly for a minute right. or talk out of turn and everything's not so. Right. Can't say this. Can't do this. Can't say this. Can't do this. You know, it's almost like being in prison right. at some schools. Yeah. And the you know the um, and then. We have the school I'm in now. We receive a number of kids who come out from Hartford to the district, and they, there's definitely a difference in um, in behavior. But again, you know, I mean, you know, I know I'm preaching to the choir with between you and the listeners, but you know, a lot of what what can be considered as um, misbehavior is usually a cultural clash. Mm. And if you look at kids or people in general who are louder or are looking for more attention, it's because they've been overlooked so much in the past. So like you said, everything that's going on in class where one kid may call out something and it's seen as uh, enthusiasm, uh, but a kid of color does it and it becomes pathologized. You know, no, that's not something we do. This is because you're unruly. This is because you don't know, know your manners, that we have to stop this right now. Mm. Whereas it's the same kind of enthusiasm as any other kid would, sh- would show. Mm. Do with standardized testing. And are we focused so much on student behavior because we need those minutes in order to make sure that we're covering the correct curriculum, if that makes sense? 
Right. And I think that, to, uh, you know, so Connecticut is infamous for we have the largest um, achievement gap in the country. Our, yes, yes. Our white kids, uh, like, you know, way outperform our black kids, regardless of what district they're in. If they're a kid of color in a affluent district, they still trail 20 points behind the white kids in the same schools. Yes. Um, it, you know, and so... Uh, you know, that's interesting. I, 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 just, I really think it's a matter of what the definition of order is uh, to a large extent mm. because, you know, there are all kinds of different ways to do classroom activities that allow, you know, some that are, no, you need to stop and be quiet and I got to take one per- person at a time. But, the, you know, the problem with the teacher, one teacher to 20, 25 kids, they raise their hand they're only getting to participate once a class. Right. Um, and so, you know, as a world language teacher where my uh, goal is to get the kids talking as much as possible, I think teachers have a hard time releasing, you know, we call, you know, we call it releasing responsibility, but releasing control of the classroom and believing that if you put the kids in small groups, they can still learn without me there. So I think to a large extent that teachers are holding on too tight to control um, you know, the studies show that kids of color prefer to work in groups, not because um, it's a social time, but because of a, it's a think tank. That yeah. that's the way that they learn best. That's the way they prefer to, to learn. But uh, we, the schools and the education system hasn't caught up to that. Yeah. And you know, I think we you, you were talking, talking about, about Go ahead. No, 21st century skills, but that... Um, but being able to collaborate, we're not doing a great job of letting the kids learn how to do that. And I think, you know, we talked about before it started, before we started the podcast, was that, you know, the focus of education, like the mission, like what education, public education was first created for. And you brought up some interesting points that I think some of our readers would know about, but not all. Right. That, you know, when the public education in the United States became a, a real movement, the design, the reason was, is primarily to get the Irish immigrants ready to go work in the factories so that they knew how to be on time, so that they listened to authorities, so that they obeyed directions. And we have, to uh, some extent, moved away from that in more affluent districts, but we have not done it in the more urban districts, the more mm. diverse, but well, I'll go with urban as opposed to necessarily diverse. I think there's a, uh, I think it's more of a poor urban district kind of phenomena that we are still preparing those kids for low skill, low paying jobs. Right. And it's indicative in that we want kids to be in order opposed to so much of them learning and talking. I just had a conversation with a parent um, and they were saying, you know, my child keeps getting in trouble for talking. And I was like, well, how old is your child? She was like, nine. Um, He's a nine-year-old boy. And I was like, well, nine-year-olds talk. Like, that's what they do. And so she, right. So she went and she observed the classroom and she said, you could hear a pin drop. And she said, you know, she was listening to the kids and a lot of the conversations they were trying to have was trying to figure out something with the work. But that was even shut down. That all the, everybody, they wanted quiet and they wanted the kids to listen and do. And we all know that as an employee or, you know, God forbid, as a small business owner or, you know, a company vice president, if all you can do is take orders and perform, then you're not really going to get far um, 
you're not going to get far. So I, I like how, you know, right. what you say, you know, what are we preparing our kids for? And I think sometimes, and it shows when you go to an affluent district and kids have much more freedoms and they have the ability to do things out of the box compared to some of our schools where we're looking and kids are in trouble for talking or, you know, it's just crazy. So right. And, go ahead. And I also think that like when, when some kids come up and they have a, suggestion or could I do this particular assignment this way I think some kids are listened to a lot more than others oh if this kid you know so kid A comes up with what I perceive as a great idea oh okay yeah you can do it that way and then the next kid comes up and maybe I feel as though they're trying to quote unquote get out of the assignment I gave and you know I don't I'm sure that there's a correlation there between kids of color or yeah I'll go with kids of color versus the white kids who might do that. I, I think we do listen more to the white kids. I mean, right? I mean, school's a tiny microcosm of, of the whole country and society anyway. So obviously those kids, the white kids, are getting more of a benefit of the doubt than, uh, than other kids are with, with the teachers that just as being part of the system. And again, hey, I have been a teacher for 20 years. I just have become very, very aware of, I, I like to consider myself woke. Mm. <laughs> that you are. That you because these are things that we as teachers, even if we won't admit it, these are things that we know to be true. And I'll even take right. it a step further in that when I've worked in schools where the whole population, let's say, is Hispanic, if there is a soci an SES, if there are other kids in that school who are maybe they're still Hispanic, but they're well to do. Those kids who have parents who are engaged and who are well-to-do, they're listened to a lot more than kids who have the opposite, yep. who don't have parents who advocate for Definitely. them, whose parents who we know are coming from um, backgrounds that um, are entrenched in poverty. And even though people will say, oh, no, 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 it's, it's a natural human behavior that unless you pay attention to and that you try to reverse, it'll continue to happen. So I have to ask, what right. you talked about lunch, you talked about, you know, just the behavior, just in the hallway, student behavior. What are some other differences that you see in working in schools that um, are more fluent than most? Well, definitely for me, one of the, and, you know, one of the reasons I kind of want to do this, uh, this podcast with you. And by the way, on my own podcast, uh, educulturepodcast.com, <laughs> um, is just talking about, the expectations. You know, when I was teaching in a more urban setting, you know, I've always preached that we have to have high expectations. You have high expectations and the kids will meet them. If you have low expectations, the kids will meet them. And so I always kind of prided myself on having high expectations for my kids. And now I come into this this classroom where the, the kid's skill set is higher. And so I can, like, I, I'm lowballing them right now because I haven't kept as high a standard as maybe I should have when I was teaching in the more urban setting. Um, And that's upsetting to me. Um, But again, it's just realizing it. And I had to take the kids where they were and then get them to where they need to be. But I think I could have uh, pushed them harder to get or led them better to get to where they they needed to be. And I don't know that I did now. And I I think that's a very big lesson I'm going to take as I move on and you know, hopefully get another administrative position somewhere that that we really need to be leading the underachieving kids 
harder and better because they, they really can. Good God, a 12-year-old is, is capable of a lot more than I was giving them credit for. Right. One of the things that I noticed um, when I left Memphis City Schools and I came to the metro Atlanta area, I because I realized that for my kids, I wasn't pushing them hard enough and pushing them in the sense of making mm-hmm. sure that they were competent writers. And I remember when I came here, I decided that all of our work was going to focus around writing, like rigorous writing. And we were going to read these really hard things. And I remember the kids being like, some of the kids were like ecstatic. Um, and even the kids who couldn't do, they still were like, why are we doing all of this? But I realized after going into um, district level positions is that most of these kids have been held to low expectations across the board since they've entered school. So nobody has ever said, nobody has, no parent has ever questioned why has my child not been taught writing? And this is only my personal experience. So I can't speak for other school districts, but I remember going into elementary schools and saying, okay, so when do you teach writing? Oh, well, we don't teach writing. Okay, so if we don't teach writing, how do we complain about writing? And then when the kids get to sixth grade, they don't, of course, they don't know how to write. And then, of course, when they get to ninth grade, of course, they don't know how to write. It's just, and I I put the blame not so much on, I put it on teachers, but I put the majority on it on administrators because some of them are so focused on test results that they say, you know, let's take the writing block and let's give them more reading time but it's not really reading time it's how do you answer selective response questions and so for me as a parent um I always think you know what do I want my kids to do I want them to be better readers and writers right so I'm always like okay when are you being taught writing and so I say that to say that a lot of our kids and you know you can be poor and you can be poor in any race but most of our poor kids most of our kids who are coming from districts who are poor they are not given that chance to flourish as writers. They're not given that chance to flourish as mathematicians. They get to high school and there's only certain courses offered. You know, it, it's it's a continual cycle of low expectations, despite what we say that we have high expectations. Right. And then they'll pull kids out of like, you know, we had I was in a school where they didn't teach social studies what because the there was just no time for it. And so it's like, no, you can teach. I mean, and, and then I went to a school where all of the writing was taught through the social studies curriculum so that it was addressing literacy issues, but within context, as opposed to just sitting there and drilling, you know, test prep. Um, I know there are some elementary schools that do very little science for the same reason, that, no, we don't have time to do content. We have to do, we just have to spend all the time on the skills. And, uh, and then, so then you have kids like where I, where I am now who come out with, with a much more well-rounded liberal arts, you know, education or with a, and actually a whole lot more STEM experience than the schools that are just focused on, on the test. Yeah. And I think in this day and age of this testing and testing and testing, I think we are doing people a disservice, doing our kids a disservice when we are we are preparing them to take tests and we're not preparing them on how to function in the real world. And I tell parents all the time, like you're seeing in these affluent districts, parents have the power to make it stop. And until parents yep. realize that power, things will remain the same. Yep. And it's unfortunate that, you know, a lot of the, you know, I, I use the um, ESL as an example of how, 
you know, the special, special ed and ESL are governed by very similar rules and laws. It is the special education that, you know, you, you get a, a special education audit in your district and, and people's knees are shaking. But people mess around with the ESL money all the time. And it's because a lot of the special ed advocacy has come from people with money who brought their lawyers and brought their advocates. And so it's become, you know, a real, as well as should, I'm not saying that it, that's a bad thing, but, you know, that that those kids' rights are very well protected, whereas you have a largely disenfranchised um, group of parents who are who may be new to the country and don't know how to get things done, don't realize that they really do have a lot of power. And so those ESL kids, you know, they had the the rules. You know, you gotta learn you gotta learn the, the language in two years. Are you kidding me? We have kids. We tell our kids to go to school for six years to study a language, you know? But no, we expect kids coming in learning English to do it in two years. Yeah, yeah. I think you brought up a really, really good point. Um, and so I have to ask you, what, like, so at an affluent district, are all the kids taking foreign language? Just about. Um, I think um, that there may be some kids who have been EIP'd out. IEP'd out, um, but I think that pretty much everybody does, and the school offers Spanish and Chinese, and the district, so I'm in the middle school, six, seven, eight, eight and uh, they have, I know it goes down to third grade, and I don't know if it goes down any lower, but the language program starts in the elementary schools. Mm, mm. And that is, you know, everybody knows that studying in a foreign language helps um, students just overall academics. Right. Well, you know, what I keep, I've always advocated for everyone taking world language. And a lot of people, is, you know, it's how it's taught. You know, people say, oh, they don't learn. Well, then it's not being taught right. They learn how to speak English. They can learn how to speak Spanish. You just have to teach them right. Um, and so I lost my train of thought. But... Uh, yeah, I lost it. Uh, anyone can learn a second language. And, oh, I know what I was going to say, is that language skills are transferable. So anything that you learn studying a second language or third language for some kids, it reinforces what they already know in other languages and then also expands it. Like you get to actually look at the differences, and by learning those differences, you learn your own language, your, your heritage language better, as well as being able to take what you know in your heritage language to a learned language. Uh, so all of those skills are transferable. It just So it really is giving the kids another period of literacy rather than pulling them out for remediation. Mm. Wow. So I have to ask you this. What? Give me one more big difference that you've seen. Like we've seen, the, you've talked about the foreign language. You've talked about, you know, kids usually bring their lunch. You've talked about all these things. What are some of the? What's the other big thing that you've seen in working in a fluent school? Well, I have to say that we just finished um, parent-teacher conferences, and I'm used to, you know, we try to schedule them in, in the city, in the libraries, out in the neighborhood so that parents who had a hard time getting to the schools or, or for whatever reason so that they could attend the conferences. And we had them at night and we had them in the late afternoon or whatever. But so at this school, 
they held the conferences, all of them were during the day. Probably the latest was at 4 in the afternoon. And 90% of the parents came. I was like, they made no accommodations. So basically, the parents have the kinds of jobs where they can be flexible in their scheduling and or, and that was the other thing, like both parents were there. Like I saw so many couples coming. And yeah, there were there were a lot of just moms coming too, but there were so many men coming in in their suits on their way to work or on their lunch or whatever. It was uh, it was pretty pretty. It was just very different. It was very different for me. Mm. So as you're working in, in now in a fluent district, um, I want you to put your administrator hat on. How do we okay. as um, education professionals? as teachers, as parents, how do we advocate for our children in schools that may be Title I, um, in schools that just may be working a solid working class, but they don't have the resources or the advocacy that these that an affluent district has? What do we do? What's the first step? I think, I, I think the, you know, like we said, that the parents have the power. And I think one of the key words to use whenever looking at the classes that your kids are taking is is called is ask if every class is a pre-AP class because too many the tracking in schools I think is it just kills kids I was not a good student I I was smart but I did not do well I chose not to I was a pain in the butt I was not in college prep classes same here until my until my junior year. And that's yeah. when I saw my brother go off to college. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I want to do that. And so I started I started studying. But what had happened was the classes that I were in were lower and didn't prepare. Like, I couldn't jump tracks. And so I think, I think as an administrator, I think it is a moral imperative that these classes all be considered pre-AP. So that if there's content that's required for the AP class, it needs to be mapped out from fifth grade through through twelfth grade, so that a kid like me, who didn't figure things out until I was sixteen, still has the opportunity to take an AP class, mm. or still has the opportunity to to jump a track. Um, and so that's what a parent needs to do. Also, is, is talk about a class being pre-AP, realize that they have the power to come in and say, no, you can't put my kid in that in that track. I want I want her in this track. And that 90% of the time, you know, the, the, the district acquiesces. They just might say, okay, well, it's against our recommendation, but the parent gets to choose. Um, and then from an administrator's standpoint, make sure that it's not that these other classes are just a dumbed-down version and they don't, you know, they go slower or they do different content. It should be the same content but taught in a different way. Oh my God, you're speaking a language. You know, my, my nine-year-old has been struggling a bit in school. And one of the things that I've told her teacher is that I'm, well, not even her teacher, because this isn't really a teacher issue. Her teacher is fabulous, actually. But I've said, um, is that I won't let you pigeonhole her into one spot. And we have to deal with crappy instruction year after year after year because of what you perceive she can or she cannot do. And I think a lot of parents don't realize that. They know the final authority isn't the school. It's you as the parent. I remember my son, who's now a senior, I remember him saying um, he wasn't gifted. 
And I remember going to his middle school and saying, no, you're going to put him in the honors classes because I knew that he would be exposed to more. And I remember again going up to the school and advocating as an eighth grader for him to be able to take ninth grade English and ninth grade math. He's now a senior. He's in the top 10 percent of his class and he has scholarships he has he's being offered scholarships right now but if I had let him just sit and get he would not have been I don't believe he would have been um he would have had the same opportunities as some of his classmates based upon what people thought he could and could not do so I think a lot of times parents just don't realize it and maybe you know it comes back to that conversation about high expectations parents need to realize that the higher expectation they have for their kids same thing, you know, they, they will meet the expectations we set. And so a parent, and I think it also gives, wow, my mom thinks I can do this, but I must be able to do this. You know, I think there's a, an, an innate trust between a kid and the mom that, that this is possible because my mom says it is, so I know it is. Right. And so that's the most important advocate a kid could have is their, is their parents. And I think I want people when they listen to this podcast is that I don't know if this podcast is more for teachers or if it's for parents. I think as teachers, we understand, we know the differences, we are clear. But for parents, I don't think they understand. Like when you don't come to a parent teacher meeting, it sends the message that you don't care. And even if you do. And and, and whether that's true, right. And usually that's not the case. I, I love uh, Gloria Lyson Billings does this uh, uh, fantastic talk about that. That no, it's just that maybe someone's working third shift and they can't make it, or there's so many other reasons as opposed to not caring. And a large part of that is often with um, you know uh, in Hartford we have a large population of our kids come from the West Indies. Um, is mm. the primary? Oh uh, God, their parents care. Yeah. And, and and so and so when they there's a certain amount of trust that they have for the school system that they they believe that we know what's best and in many ways we do but we also need that parent to tell us more about their kid too. Right. Right. And I think, you know, it's it's it, this is for the parents who, you know, and schools have to do a better job of engaging parents or engaging them in different ways. But for that parent who works third shift, if I don't go to work, I get fired. If I get fired, I don't have right. any money. We don't have a place to live. So maybe it's engaging parents where, hey, we put our PTA meeting on P- on Facebook Live or, you know, you're able to schedule yep. phone conferences or these type of things because, I think the main takeaway that I've always gotten from go, from being in affluent schools, talking to teachers, administrators, and just watching the politics of the school is that parents have the power. And I think that so many times they feel like they are, they don't. And that, in, in that comes, um, it can come a lot of issues if parents feel like they don't have the power. So I have to ask you, one of the, so you're in this school, you're working, you're middle school, um, foreign language, and you're teaching these students. What are some of the, like, as a parent who is listening to this and saying, how do I, like, what do I do? Monday is coming up in two days. What do I do to engage? Um, what do I do to engage the school and to make sure that my child isn't left? What would you tell them to do? Oh, wow. 
Yeah, well, I was, you know, and again, it comes down to availability, I think. I think that all, most schools will welcome a parent who wants to spend the day shadowing their kid. And I think that that would be amazing. Mm. You know, again, that's hard, hard to get done. But I think it's, it's letting the teachers know that you are involved, that you care, that you um, are available. And, and yet, I mean, and I think... I don't think I'm, I'm rare in this case that I would prefer to email with a parent, and I am really good with it. I'll get back to you probably within six hours via email, but right. it'll take me a long time to do it by phone. And so I think that, you know, using those kinds of communication methods and being okay with it, let me email you because I'll, I'll be all over it. Um, and so if you email me, all I have to do is hit the reply button, you know, and that, that makes it easier on me. I think teachers want to want parents to be involved, want to communicate, but when you have 120 kids, it's, it's daunting to yeah. try and do that. So making it as certainly not easy but as simple as possible for a teacher and letting them know that you want to be involved, so go and knock off some uh, – emails to your kids to your kids teachers now i think that would that's the best step first step i think in becoming a presence in the in the child's school life that's so awesome and i think you you know you talked about email um just all of these things that we know that parents need help with and they can make their job easier and they're not trying to run to the school so I have to ask you, because I right. mentioned it a little bit before, and I don't want to take up all of your time, because like you, I have a dog that's downstairs that's probably eating up the rest of the Thanksgiving food. <laughs> I, I got four of them. Oh, my gosh. You're like a rock star. My one is wearing me out. So let me ask you, you talked about you have a podcast. Talk a second about the podcast and tell everybody where they can find it. And um, guys, who are, people who are listening, the podcast is really, really good. It examines our issues in education. Um that most people don't want to talk about. Um, and so tell them where they can find you, if they have a question, um, if they want to, you know, give you some research, whatever they want, how can they reach you and how can they find your podcast? Well, that, thank you very much for the opportunity. So the name <laughs> of the podcast is the Edu, E-D-U, Culture Podcast. Um, we are on Apple, uh, on Apple Podcasts. I'm on Stitcher. But we do have a website, which is www.educulturepodcast.com. Uh, and so we would love uh, people to, to write in with questions. That would be the best thing. Or if somebody wants to be interviewed, we've started uh, branching out and we've got some interviews. The focus is, and the, the tagline um, for our podcast is that it's a podcast for educators interested in social justice. Mm. Um, and it's a colleague and my who were both in our um, doctorate programs, and we both taught at the same school for a while, and then you know remained friends, but went our different career paths. Um, and so it's been great getting together and talking about. Um, and you know, we do have the Bell Biv DeVos corner where we talk about uh, <laughs> that fearless leader up there. Um, <laughs> And so we do. Sometimes it's it's local. We're we're, we're operating from Connecticut, uh, but most of the time it is a global take on education as a social justice issue. Wow! And so tell and then tell everybody where they can contact you if they have an email address, maybe Twitter, where they can. Sure. Contact you. Well, I, 
you can. Oh yeah. So I'm at uh, Linda T Darcy um, on Twitter. I am um, at Educulture Tweet. Uh, we have a Facebook page, and then there is a, a contact us link on the um, website at Educulture.com as well. Wow. Thank you for joining us, Linda. I think this is a really, this is a good glimpse. And this is the beginning of a conversation. Um, not this, and the biggest thing that I wanted us to get from this is that there are differences that most teachers already know about, but more importantly, that parents need to know about so that they can better equip their children to be successful and they can engage with their board member or they can engage with the superintendent or they can engage with whoever um, that makes these type of decisions at their children's schools. So um, thank you for joining us. We will please everybody leave an iTunes review, share this episode, and we will see you next time from the Educators Room Podcast. (laughs) Bye.